Fathering is a green, slow thing. By Sophie Strand You do it, although there are not many to show you how. Fathering. A spiritual practice, not practiced these days, but wielded, armed, simplified. So, you look to the trees. The fir tree father is sending a syrup of sunshine and wind back into the soil that slowly embraces, feeds the seed of the fir tree father's children, his green, countless children. The mallard duck with emerald helmet, his wet stone eyes fixed on the dusty backs of his little ones struggling against the river current. He shows them to move with water, with air, and in the rain, to hold still and let the dissolving clouds wash their feathers. How the blue stone mountain furred in green laurel leaves overlooking our small town as both a mother and a father. How stone fathers, by holding the stream banks together, holding fossils and bone fragments, the recorder and rememberer of ancestors, veining the ground with stability so when the branches and dust and mineral of future stone falls, it falls on a place that holds still and ready. You learn from green things, from slow things, Owls plucking shadow from shadow to feed their own. And then you start, knowing there is no end to the learning, no right way forward. Let's walk, you say, taking my hand. Let's go watch the birds. Welcome to the World of Wisdom podcast. Uh, my name is Amit. And uh, today, I have someone, actually, I stumbled into her universe, and I had a hard time like not being hooked into it during a talk that you did um, at, uh, with, with, I think it's Going Planetary or something like that. And I was just sitting with a, like, why didn't she talk more? I wanted to hear what she had to say. That was interesting. And so... I did something that I rarely do, which to, was to look you up. And then um, I was stuck. And now I follow you on Instagram. And I'm a bit of a fanboy, uh, honestly. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Sophie Strand. Well, thank you for having me on. And um, I'm really glad to be connected too. Um, I feel like the only way I think is through these conversations and these connections. And I feel like every time I like put a little mushroom up, I find more people like you who are thinking about similar stuff. So what a good thing. Um, who would have known that that like blip where I talked for like 30 seconds <laughs> in like a big panel of people would have any effect. Um, I was honored to be included in that. I'm Sophie Strand. I'm an author. I'm interested in the intersection between spirituality, ecology, and storytelling. Um, I'm a compost heap. I love disco, um, and I have been a stubborn contrarian since I was a little kid. So always trying to question authority. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. How would you How would you identify yourself if you had to blurb yourself? Oh, I think I'm <laughs> a I'm a hopeless curious. Yeah, that's probably it. Like I'm and and I'm passionate about the world that we live in. 
I, I want to, I want for me to keep being able to live in it. I want for my kids, my two daughters to uh, be able to live in it and, and to um, be with it. And uh, I'm just curious to see where we're going because a lot of my, uh, a lot of my intuitions are, have been yelling at me that we're going in the wrong direction. And then I've been stumbling into this perspective that what is that really? Like what's, what is right and wrong, you know? And, and who am I to tell? Um, and so uh, now I'm just curious, I think. Uh, and actually, it's, you said that you've been a, in a contrarian um, your, your whole life. Would you speak more to that? Like what, <laughs> <laughs> how, how come? Or like, can you, can you trace it back? Well, I think, um, hmm. I think that there's a soft answer and there's a slightly more raw answer. The soft answer is that I was raised by, you know, hippie intellectuals who were, you know, constantly questioning the government and the state of affairs. And um, there were a lot of intellectuals and um, activists in my house growing up. So, I, you know, I was raised in the soup of kind of questioning the dominant paradigms. But I think on a much more raw realistic level, I um, experienced very violent um, abuse at a very young age, which made me, seated in me, a deep cynicism about the world of men and a deep cynicism about what people were telling me, to always be questioning, to always be looking for what was not being said, um, for, the, um, for what was really behind the curtain. Um, and that, so, so I've always operated, I have a deep trust for landscape and ecosystems and animals, which I think is very healing and kind of balances it out. But I've always been very distrustful of the world of men, <laughs> especially when I was younger, I was very distrustful of adults. Yeah. So I, I do think it's funny now I was looking back at like high school and I was always like, I had a real reputation as being the person who'd be really cantankerous and get in the teacher's face that we were um, erasing indigenous history, that the textbooks were racist. I was like that person. And it was seen, I was seen as an irritant. Like my friends loved me, but I was like seen as like being like, oh, she's so difficult. But now that's the, you know, critical race theory. This is the, the talk of the town. And I want to be like, okay, so I guess that was all right. Um, yeah, that's a snapshot. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It helps with that. Um increased resolution, if you will. When you said contrarian, I'm like, well, maybe it's it's the proper sense of the word, but I, I find so many that are contrarians and, and then they're kind of just always in opposition. And I, I haven't read you like that. I haven't felt you <laughs> writing like that. I mean, I do think that it's important to have a little um, sense of humor about yourself. And, you know, we before we were recording, I was saying I've been on so many podcasts and I have just kind of want to laugh about it, that people even want, to have, you know, ask my opinion about things. So I do think I have to kind of make fun of myself a little bit. I'm super passionate and I have, you know, very strong convictions. And there is something a little silly about that, necessarily silly. Um, yeah, yeah. Just trying to add a little, a little dose of, of humor into my own self-perception and not have any kind of self-aggrandizing. Yeah. 
But I was gonna gonna say to jump backwards a little bit that I want to honor that you, the stakes of these conversations are extraordinarily high for you as a parent, and especially as a parent of girls. And I can feel these things in my body, but I don't have. I'm not responsible for children, and I think that these these conversations are they're not you know glib or an intellectual game like they are you trying to figure out how to take care of human beings that belong to you um so i did i did want to honor that thank you yeah yeah i know it, it feels like stakes are high and, and at the same time i'm trying to kind of relax into that because of just just be with the wonder of the world because I, I find that when I get stuck in the stakes are high or the house is burning or whichever, yeah. you know, I'm not a very good parent and, and um, I rush them and they don't like being rushed. <laughs> they, they have a natural sense of wonder. And, but it's, it's interesting or maybe it's not, but yeah, I'm, I'm just curious about it because you've been writing a lot about the masculine particularly. And I'm wondering how did that come about? <laughs> um, how did that come about? Well, I went to the crossroads and I said, make me a mouth for something. Now, that's the joke. Um, I actually don't really know. I hmm, Here's me backforming and trying to create a narrative of something that's a lot messier than it will sound. I wrote, I studied for many years um, the figure, the historical figure of Jesus through a Jewish rabbinical tradition, and then wrote this long historical fiction novel trying to rewild that figure. And so I was really interested in how male figures get co-opted by patriarchy later on, and that patriarchy, patriarchy and masculinity aren't the same thing. But because we've conflated the two, it's impoverished the ability for men to imagine different healthier stories or modes of being. Um, so you can't necessarily blame men when they fall into a bad rut. They're just not being offered many other options. Um, so that was something that I was beginning to see through this other project I was doing. And I used to run, I live in the Hudson Valley in New York state, a storytelling, storytelling gathering for women where people would get together and we'd have a theme like gynecological health, relationships, um, chronic illness, death, and we tell stories and then help each other change the stories, you know, offer a little bit of a refraction. But right pretty much a week before quarantine, we all gathered together and it was a rotating group of women. So different people each time, but some of the same members. And we all mutually agreed that so many of the problems and issues regarded men were about men and that we couldn't possibly continue on this group without including men. And that that was going to be the next step. And then quarantine happened. <laughs> so it, and these meetings really couldn't happen without food and without shared space. There was just, there was a level of intimacy that required being physically together. So I would say that, and then quarantine was deeply hard for me. And I, my novel was rejected 27 times before finally selling. And I had this moment where I thought, you know, I feel pretty pretty tired of the dominant idea of how publishing happens and how writing happens. I'm very ill. I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't know where anything's going. I'd rather just create connectivity with readers. And I started posting these little essays online about rewilding myths of the masculine because I thought I needed to heal it in myself, honestly. I was like, I need to heal my relationship to the masculine. Let's see if there are older, more healthier modes of it. And 
people, it was like a party. People just started to like pile on the party. Yeah. I think I like, I had like 2000 new readers in a week. It was really wild. Um, so that's the, the strange roundabout answer. It's probably very long. Um, what has your experience of masculinity been? So where is your country of origin and what was it like growing up identifying as a man there? I'm, I'm born and raised in Sweden and I have, but I have a father who's from India uh, and a mother from, from Sweden and from Germany. That's her like main roots of, and I don't know. I don't know what it was like to be, to be grown up as a man there. Um, I have a, a sister um, who's two years younger than I am. And I could definitely see differences between us. And I could see differences because of my father's cultural background with India, especially when we came into our sort of, when we became teenagers. Like, but I don't, I don't know, you know? And so I think that's, 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 that says a lot, I think. <laughs> the fact that I don't know. Um, or that you haven't been invited to ask yourself. Like you haven't even been given that space to have that conversation with yourself. That's interesting. That's a that's a charitable interpretation, and I think it's also the. But but I do think I mean it's it's never sat right with me, you know. And I've been longing for something else, and I haven't been feeling like I wanted to. I've always felt like a a man or a guy, but I haven't wanted to identify with the guy, you know, like the that stereotypical, that hasn't attracted me. I haven't been pulled towards that. And so I've felt a little bit lost. Like I've, I've been sailing between hierarchies and sailing between, and I mean, that's probably also why I'm so attracted to your work um, because there's more there. There is this sort of multiplicity of stories and, and this complex, complexification of something which um, is really attractive to me because uh, it makes me feel more home and I can kind of sink into my body and be like, ooh, there are some some you know sentences or or paragraphs or or even stories here that I can relate to, and I'm just I'm curious about where you, given all the work that you've done, if you would kind of indulge a long answer and and uh, speak to like what what is the state of masculinity at the moment? Hmm. What is the state of masculinity? Well, I've been thinking. Um, along a metaphoric line of um, dysbiosis, gut dysbiosis, which is when you take too many antibiotics or you are incredibly ill and all of the microbiome in your gut die off, there's all of this empty real estate that's opened up. So a pathogen can take over because there's too much space and you can have a bloom of candida or a, a deadly bacterial infection. And I've been thinking, it's called um, dysbiosis. And I've been thinking of patriarchy's version of masculinity as a monomyth, a tie to monoculture, <laughs> monoagriculture, all sorts of different um, monologic thought processes as being kind of like a monologuing pathogen that's been given too much narrative and cultural real estate because we've killed off all of these different biodiverse narratives and modes of being um, through ecocide, through killing off more than human beings and also killing off many, many different indigenous populations, killing off pagan wisdom, old herbal practices, different epistemologies. We've created this, this cultural gut that is so ravaged that 
a pathogen can take over and it's not, it's no good, but here's the problem. And, and this is what I've been struggling with is I I've experienced this intimately when I was first, when I first got very ill and was misdiagnosed at age 16, they thought it was some kind of bacterial infection or Lyme. And I got pounded with like 30 rounds of antibiotics in like a very short period of time. And it almost killed me. Um, and it destroyed my gut. And afterwards, of course, I had all of these different issues. And then they would try and give me fungicidals and then things to kill other things. And that would make me sicker. And it never repaired my gut ecosystem or my health. And it, it's this kind of um, antibiotic. Um, there's a great ecologist, and he's written, written this amazing book called The Probiotic Planet. His name is Jamie Lorimer, if you don't know about him. He's done a bunch of talks. And he writes about the idea of like, the probiotic, not even like as being a pill, but being like a different ecological mode, which is what if we didn't manage landscapes by trying to clean them up, but by trying to mulch them and making them more biodiverse. So I I see patriarchal masculinity right now as having taken up all the space in the room, but the way to get rid of it is not to try and just kill it. Because when you do that, it fights back like a hydra head. Um, It becomes very complicated, but to overwhelm it, with not just another oppositional story that defines itself in op- like polemically, but to try and just add so many different modes of being, you know, sacred androgens, more than human archetypes, all sorts of different kinds of stories that just neutralize and kind of contain that um, problematic narrative. Yeah. So what I was trying to do with, with my book, and I really think it's an unfinished book. It's, it's an open text, which I, I love. The poet Lynn Higinian wrote this amazing um, essay that I always want to refer people back to called The Rejection of Closure, which is about like, how do we open up text? How do we create interrogative, spacious, multi-orgasmic, <laughs> sensory texts that refuse to finish or complete an idea? Um, and so the book I wrote, The Flowering Wand, about masculinity was more of an invitation. It was saying, like, I am only offering a couple of different voices, and they're all coming through my mouth. So I need a call and response. I need to create an orchestra, polyphony, um, multitudinous stories. Yeah. So that's my, my answer. The state of masculinity is that we are in a state of cultural dysbiosis, and we need a probiotic. That, that just resonates so incredibly strongly. And... I mean, I think, just to point it out, but I mean, the, the, what, I, what I also see is that because of that, that story has taken precedence, there is a, and because it's been successful in a way, like it's, it's kind of grown or, or like cancerously yeah. grown or taken over or, or interfered in so many other realms where it shouldn't be in the first place. I mean, we have these other, I don't know, I tend to believe that we have these other things as, as a result. So like, I mean... The, the fact that masculinity and capitalism r- rhyme so well together, um, this whole narrative of, of the sort of the monolith, the, the, the progress that we are, are worshipping, um, the growth, the profit paradigm. I mean, this, this one, one god of money um, that we, we've subjected, you know, it's, it seems to just propagate endlessly through the system. And, and it's such a... I don't know, hopeful and brave task to take on to kind of, what do you call that? Loosen its grip, uh, if you will. But how, how, what approach have you taken to, 
to loosen its grip? Like, what, what are the stories that you've found that are attractive? I don't think I would have ordered this off the menu. It really did drop in in a kind of like almost cataclysmic, unconsented to way. Um, and then I was just writing it and doing it. Um, what ways? I mean, I've really enjoyed working with the figure of Dionysus, who in the modern day has been unfortunately overshadowed by the Roman smear campaign to make him into a kind of jolly, problematic god of wine. But the truth is that he's one of the oldest um, Mediterranean gods that we from the Bronze Age that predates the Olympic pantheon, shows up in Linear B. And um, he's not even referred to as a human god. He's referred to in Greek as a daemon. Like, so he's, he's really seen as like an elemental figure. Um, he's very different than the other gods. And he was also known as Liber, which is the root of libation and liberation, freedom. And he was seen as being very, very um, dangerous to uh, structure and to hierarchy and to the Roman Empire, ultimately. He was the inspiration behind slave results revolts behind Spartacus's revolts, behind this priestess woman, um, Pakula Anya, her huge revolt. Um, So he was seen as being, you know, he's kind of like pleasure activism. He's the invasive species, like throw the party outside the city gates. Like you can't dismantle dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. So he's associated with vines, with fermentation, with mushrooms, with ivy, with those vegetal um, forces that come and digest the structures rather than trying to like actually figure out how to change them. Um, emergent mind, emergent behaviors. So for me, Dionysus is, and he's also portrayed as being slightly feminine. He's the only Greek or Roman god who's never associated with a rape. He never, and it's funny that a lot of, you know, male academics in the past 200 years have said that he was asexual because he's not associated with rape. And yet he has many, many lovers. It's such an interesting thing. I actually think that he provides an amazing story, which, and this, this is, I write about in the book, which is one of the oldest examples we have of a patriarchal culture coming in and co-opting an old, an earlier, more partnership, ecologically literate culture is the story of Theseus and the Minotaur in the Labyrinth, which is based on Crete and probably dates back to Minoan culture. And so what you have is that you have the older bull god who would have been this kind of lunar king allowed to change along a a lunation cycle rather than that kind of like arrow of time, always the same sun god narrative. Um, So you have um, the Minotaur and Ariadne and then Theseus represents the Kurgan hordes and the um, the Greeks coming down and overtaking Crete, and Theseus coming in, murdering the bull god, taking over the bull god position, turning the bull into a monster, and then taking Ariadne off the island. But he's supposed to rape Ariadne and leave her on Naxos, like abandon her, and then and so Ariadne is weeping on the beach, abandoned. Um, she's betrayed her brother, the Minotaur. She's been um, ravaged by a patriarchal, you know, warrior hero figure. And then Dionysus comes and says, why are you crying about a man? I am a god. <laughs> and, he, and he marries her and he makes her into a goddess. He takes a human woman, makes her into a goddess and gives her um, a constellation. Um, actually, I think he gives her the Corona constellation in the sky. Huh, what a weird little thing. Yeah, so the Corona constellation is Ariadne's crown. And then they go on a tour of the world drinking wine and having fun. 
But I've always seen that as an amazing little kernel of wisdom that we can actually update, compost, and use now, which is when one in three women is known violent assault, and then trans and femme and, and, and many other people have, have had all sorts of different gray area gradations of abuse. What does it mean as a man or someone who identifies with masculinity, masculinity to approach the lover knowing that they have been harmed? What does it mean to come into a courtship and know that you have to respond tenderly and interrogatively to the pain that could be there? Um, so I think that's a really helpful story. Like, how can people who've been harmed come into each other's lives and create healing? Yeah, so Dionysus offers, there's so many different stories about him that offer all sorts of different ferment in how masculinity could look. He always defies classification. Um, he's always offering a different op- option. Are there mythic figures or heroes that you have had a attraction to or felt like represented something different? Or like, I mean, for me, Tolkien is like a huge inspiration. So like, you know, even yeah. like stories. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I wanted to speak to something that kind of was bouncing around in my system when I heard you speak um, before. So yeah. I'm going to ignore your question do it, do for it. a little bit. The, um, I had a conversation a, a week back or so with, with a woman who's working a lot with um, public community action community action networks and and we were speaking of this idea of the masculine and the feminine and i was saying that um there's a relationship there and that it's also something that i i'm I'm longing for incorporating more of my feminine into it and she kind of pushed back a little bit and saying like yeah that's good you know it's a it's 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 nice that you're trying to do that and and like don't um I don't know. I'm going to leave her out of it because I don't want to mis- misrepresent what she's saying. But but what the way that I heard it was that that's that's good, you know, that you want to do that, that you're curious about those other perspectives. But but also like don't take it away from them, from from the others. Let's say in that case, um, and from the other views, um, what they've gone through. So like, and and it's something to do with like also that view of like I heard Ian McGilchrist express it that that the stress, um, the the resistance is something that fortifies a system if you are able to live through it if you will um you you get clearer and you become more aware maybe and you become stronger you grow there's a potential for that anyways and so i'm I'm curious to in my own life i feel like i've been resisting to being pulled into the masculine or at least the 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 narrative of it that i've um understood and then now I'm, I'm finding a different masculine and I've been kind of resisting that as well on habit. And then as I'm speaking to people, but m- women maybe mostly, and I can step into and inhabit that masculinity, um, something happens and, and my perspectives widen and the way that I'm able to hear the story becomes richer and deeper and more. And me being more of what I me relaxing into that masculinity allows them to relax into the femininity and then there's sort of a wider spectra or something like that. It, yeah. That's interesting. I'm thinking about the main ads, um, which is the women associated with the worship of Dionysus are mad and powerful and they shirk their womenly duties and they tear apart animals and they act and they get to embody something that's not typically considered culturally fe- feminine, which is, it's as if he, 
softens and allows women to become more complex. And that I feel like for me resonates with what you're, what you're talking about, which is it's constantly a dance, but it's like, how can we all, we refract and kaleidoscope through these different versions so that it gives the other person more of a chance to flower into their complexity, their full complexity or spectrum of identities. Yeah. And, and the aspect of, there's so many threads. I can't make sense of them, but, but the other, there's another thread of, of, um, I think it's helpful to have these frameworks as long as we understand that, that they are frameworks and, and that they are, they're maps, they're not the territory, but, but how do you, how do you see that we stand in, if there's this, uh, somebody smart said that, you know, it's the, the problem with maps these days is that they become part of the territory. And so I'm also curious about that. Like, is it, is it just making more maps so that we can't look at them all? Or is it like, how do we, <laughs> how do we flood? <laughs> well, I, I think the whole, for me, the problem with a map is that it ossifies and it explains an ecosystem that's not climactic. You know, continents drift, people change, we're processes, verbs, gerunds more than we are nouns or anything static. And so for me, the problem with any map is the same problem with a text, which is, you know, I much prefer this, you know, Aboriginal song lines where it, there's something relational and constantly adapting and, um, and moving with the weathers, with different changing climatological and social pressures, um, that kind of map that moves with you, that changes with, with your relationship to land, I think can be helpful. I think whenever we put something down on a piece of paper and pretend like it's going to stay the same, it becomes brittle and it no longer nourishes us. In fact, it encourages a kind of, um, yeah, a, a static belief system that then <laughs> corners us into ecocidal crazy behavior. So, yeah, I think for me, you know, the minute I wrote a book, I thought I disavow this. Like every time I write something, I'm always moving. Um, and, I, and I hope that people, you know, I, one of the things I love is when I love a writer, I love going back and reading their whole body of work and seeing how they changed their mind. <laughs> how they, like my favorite book by Virginia Woolf is one of her first books where she's not writing in her usual style at all. You can see her playing with things. Um, I think it's called Night and Day. It, it's like a very interesting book because she's not a fully developed writer. Um, and it's almost my favorite of her books. So I, I think that, that maps that are open and open to being changed and that are in the body and changing with the body are helpful. And that we shouldn't hold anyone accountable to their opinion one day, knowing that it will change the next. Yeah. I, I just always want to open up space for people to change. We're all changing. Um, and for our maps to change too. They are changing. I mean, our shorelines are, are changing. Clim <laughs> the climate is changing our maps and, and we better get bet we better get more light on our feet at dancing with that unpredictability. Who was that Biocomalathe who said that about maps in the territory? Who said that? I'm trying to remember. I don't know. I I, I recognized it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Good. Yeah. It wasn't me, but it, <laughs> I don't know. And I'm wondering if because that kind of it also sounds like the way that I'm thinking about initiation at the moment. Like it, it there's something there which is this this sort of liminal space which we inhabit and then 
we spend our life walking the razor's edge. And then at some points we're called to step over the line, you know, and, and then kind of trust that that next step holds because we can't step back. Like then we've fundamentally changed the razor's edge. And I just love what you're writing when you're saying that, you know, it's only initiation if you survive. Like that's, that's sort of the liminality of it. Yeah, I mean, there's so many um, men's groups and it, programs and spiritual new age paradigms and self-help books that say like, this is what you need to do to create your initiation. And the truth is that initiation is ecological. It's, it's an event that happens not in you, but in that connective tissue between you and your environment. And it's not going to be something that you necessarily planned for or get to order off the menu. And if it's really happening to you, you have to feel that terror. You have to not know if there's going to be another story. You're going to live, you always think of the hermit crab between shells. You know, they live in snails' shells, not their own. And when they're outgrowing that shell they usually find another shell that's not the right size. So they have to wait next to that shell that's not the right size for another hermit crab to come with the right size shell. And usually they line up in like 13 to 14, I think, um, different crabs. And then they do something called a vacancy chain, which is they all exchange um, shells. And I've been thinking lately about like, I think we're all trying to create these vacancy chains right now where we don't have a doula to midwife us through this initiation. No one's ever been through this particular brand of ecological chaos um, or anthropogenic chaos. And um, so we need to like kind of be each other's hermit shell crabs. We need to create these vacancy chains so we can exchange stories and help each other through. Um, but there is going to be that moment when you're like fleshless, and, I mean, shellless and just like this fleshy, weird... Um, sea creature super high stakes game of uh what's it called like the chair game yeah exactly <laughs> really high stakes <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't help i'm imagining that i think i've heard tyson young to speak to it that you know we, we've lost not lost necessarily but at least most of us don't have ceremony um and so we're all basically we're all basically infants like we haven't progressed we haven't haven't done our ritual our, our ceremony we haven't haven't um, been able to grow up in that challenge. Um, I mean, in, in the way that you would in indigenous culture to be to be picked up well, into another. Circle. I would challenge that a little bit, and I would I would say that I've met plenty of. I, I think the world we have created has created certain types of ceremonies, and they are not positive or negative, but they are very violent and very intense. And I think that there are a lot of women and a lot of femme and trans people who've been through them and you don't come through a child. <laughs> and I do, when I've read and heard Tyson say that, I've said, well, I agree to a certain extent. And I think that there's a impoverished sacredness to our life and a need to create ceremony that, that ties us, stitches us back into landscape and into relationship. But I also think we need to honor that there are elders who are perhaps 14 years old. Like, you know, I, I would say one of the oldest people I ever met was a friend of mine who was dying of bone cancer at the age of 15. And that was not a child. <laughs> that was an elder. And that's an elder I'll take with me my whole life. And so I do think that 
there's when, when we talk about the need to create ceremony and to create these things and we don't have them, so we never get initiated, it's still too human-centric a point of view. It's saying we need to do this thing rather than saying like we're constantly metabolically living with our environment, with pollutions, with this contaminated reality we are woven into. And there are people who are going to be made into elders and we need to find them and they're not going to look like we think they look. Yeah. That's beautiful. And they're not necessarily going to be human either. Yeah. But it, it really, well, it, it moves a, a tension that I've I've had, which is, you know, it's it's the either or type paradigm, which is, you know, we should we should listen to all young people or we should listen to no young people, like kind of <laughs> kind of that thing. <laughs> um, wow, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm trying to um, deal with the ramifications of that statement because I thought that was that that spoke to me. I'm glad. I mean, I I just I'm trying to. I'm always trying to problematize where I look to receive wisdom and help. And in my life, when I really think of the people who've carried me through, like really like given me sustenance that kept me alive, it has been unpredictable people who've been through extraordinary hardship. Yeah. And is that, is that relevant to pull into the, what we were saying before about sort of patriarchy um, as well, that, that perhaps at the moment, because we are seeing so much, at least I am seeing so much wisdom coming from, um, I've been using liminal a lot, but that's the best word, like yeah. liminal figures, like figures that are on the edge, on the periphery. And and then in the dominant narrative, maybe the dominant narrative is more juvenile in a sense, because it's, you know, it, it kind of relates to it as I did. Like, what does it mean to be a man? I don't know. Like, what? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I... I hesitate to call it juvenile because I think even like when we use those like ageist um, stages, it's still, it's still staging. It's still along this kind of like social Darwinist kind of like evolutionary narrative. Um, And and those, you know, it matters what stories we use to tell stories as Donna Haraway says, you know, It, it matters what bowls we pour certain ideas into. I think that our culture is deracinated. That is the word I would use. It has been uprooted from its ecological nourishment and context, and it has stopped cycling through phases. And I think that, you know, I was in an interview where someone tried to get me to like denounce ascent and ascension and transcendence and intellectualism. And I was like, no, it's, you can't do one thing forever. Sometimes you're descending like a spore. Sometimes, you know, I used spores, mushroom spores as being a great example, which is, you know, mushrooms fruit up from these underground mycorrhizal systems and myceliums, and then they sporulate millions of spores that nucleate water molecules around them. And in fact, a lot of storm systems and clouds are actually created by these nucleated, um, these spore nucleated water molecules. So storm clouds are like spore clouds. Um, and that then descend to create the humid, moist conditions where mushrooms can fruit up again and create that cycle. But there's that that cycle, which is sometimes you're riding the sport upwards, sometimes you're falling back down and you're decaying and going back into the ground. And I do think that there are perhaps whole epochs of human history where ascent was perhaps the way we were supposed to be going. But I do think that right now we're in a moment of descent, of liminality, of underworld, of um, a kind of fertile uncertainty, but that we shouldn't problematize 
any one aspect of being. It's that we get stuck somewhere. And I did, that was the one aspect of the David Graeber book that I did like. I had a lot of problems with it, um, the dawn of everything, was that it asked, when did we get stuck? The issue is not necessarily like what we're doing. It's that we can't keep moving through different adaptable ways of being in relationship with each other and in the environment. There's so much here. Yeah. I mean, I feel that in myself and I wonder, this is a more personal question for you, but I do think the most dangerous moments in my life are when I get in a fixed routine and a fixed narrative of what's what's supposed to happen. And that's when I get most brittle and anything can break me down. So I feel that in my own life. Yeah, I I, I agree fully. And, And I think, I mean, it's my, it's been one of those things that I've been thinking about lately because I've been working with, I mean, I'm, I'm, I have a, I'm be- embedded in a sort of a new spiritual context as well. So like a lot of my friends subscribe to that type of movement. And what I'm starting to see is that, um, our question is that how much movement is there actually? Like, like how dynamic is this? Like what's, what's the, what is the bandwidth or like the, the amplitude of the wave that we are allowing and like what topics are allowed and, and not allowed and how do we how do we hold each other in when when we when we doubt and, and how do we move together or not? How do we separate? Like what what are the how how does that go? And and um no I agree. I, I think the stuckness that it's more like the curiosity and the openness and the awe that I'm trying to cultivate in my everyday experience rather than adding, you know, 30 minutes of pleasure practice or like an hour of yoga and, and you know, whatever, like all those things, like we, we're so, I would say like this, we're so obsessed with things and, and we've forgotten that initial sort of idea that Ian Mega Chris points to that like even things are relationships, it's just they're denser, you know, and, and like everything's unfolding constantly. Our own bodies, I mean, I had um, a great conversation with a friend of mine called, um, great women's health um, educator and writer, Samantha Zipporah, who is saying like, we, we look to these <laughs> cycles and to these like programs outside of ourselves so much. And if we look at our own bodies, there's a lot of wisdom there. You know, people with wombs and with, with those hormones have a monthly cycle. You know, that's a cycle. That's a changing. That's an inner map. That's a kind of hormonal cartography that you can work with. And then other people, I mean, I do think that there are all sorts of different hormonal and metabolic waves that we're all experiencing. I mean, one thing I've been thinking about right now is we're going into the winter and the culture opposes that, which is we're supposed to do more, get ready for the holidays, eat more food, buy more stuff, when really we need to be letting our bodies tell us how to root into the ground, eat root vegetables, get quieter, get slower listen to that deep somatic wisdom. So I think sometimes there's this externalization of like, how do I create spiritual um, flexibility in my life? Like, how do I do all the things when really all you need is your own body um, and listening to your body, not opposing it. And I think for me as a person with illness, it's become something that I've really had to settle into, which is my body is going to tell me how my day is supposed to go. (laughs) Like I can have an idea but I'm going at the end of at, at you know at the end of it. I'm going to have to just really listen to what's happening. What is your experience of somatics and of of bodily wisdom and body practice? Oh, it's been my um, it's been the portal for me to start really 
thinking about these things constructively, I would say. Um, and, and also not so much thinking about them, but rather um, feeling them or, or being with them in a way. Um, and, and it's been my portal as well into questioning or detaching myself from ideas. I've been like raised in a very mental, idea-driven, you know, propositional um, paradigm. And, and when, when things are becoming more, you know, just discovering the procedural and the emotional and the, the that participatory, rather, like the co-creative process of like interaction and how things are, the system, you know, being reorganized in a way or like allowing it to reorganize, like the that notion of of serious play, I think, is really fun because it's it's all play, it's rules, and, but serious because I'm engaging with it so that it affords a transformation. If that's what wants to happen, you know, that I, I allow for this conversation to potentially change me, which are, like, it has, I'm pretty sure. Same, yeah, and I I think that's why stories and books are also like a kind of contained play too, which is like you're gonna go in in a kind of um, non-serious way, but you, you will, it, everything sediments in you. You never come away from anything unscathed or untainted in a, both a good and a bad way. Everything, you know, you are a, a web that catches the dew of every experience. Yeah. And that's actually a nice segue. That's something that I've been curious about as well. It's like the state of story at the moment. I mean, it's such a... Um, what would you say? Like it's, it's been such, it's such a diluted term, I find. Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I'm actually a little, um, <laughs> how do I describe this? Um, I'm a little tired of the fact, you know, I'm a long format writer. Like story is not really what I do or like writing about story in this kind of like abstract way. I like to research a epic novel and create an ecosystem with a sensory scaffolding that brings it to life and a hundred different characters. I'm not super interested in like theorizing about story forever and like writing little thought pieces. Like that's kind of what I'm doing right now because that's the thinking that happens behind these longer projects. But the thing that I'm actually devoted to are ecosystems rather than stories. And I think stories are still kind of participating in this monologic thinking, which is I would, I would prefer like a biophony, like to use the term that Bernie Cross uses to describe all of the different um, noises that animals and birds and beings make in an ecosystem to collaborate together. I'm more interested in that than I am in story. And I use the word story, but it feels facile. Um, and it feels like something a lot of people are like gravitating towards because it feels very trendy. Um, and I want to it's funny. I wrote this long book and I expected that to be like my entrance into the world would be like this long book, but instead it's like all of these thought pieces. And I feel like, Oh, Oh no. <laughs> but you know, you can never choose how things are supposed to go. Um, yeah, I'm much more interested in creating like long format ecosystems. Yeah. What is your experience of storytelling? Who do you, whose formations of it do you feel like work or don't work? Ooh, I don't. I don't know. I, I'm I'm very tired of storytelling. <laughs> yeah. Um, because it's so it's fun. I, I had um like a personal anecdote. I did I did a, I got I was invited back to like the business school where I went, yeah. where I studied. And and they have this course now called Being, which is like part like a, a mandatory course in the in the um in their bachelor program, which I think in itself is just wonderful. Cause that was just off like 50, 20 years ago when I went there, not a chance, you know. 
but but anyways, so and and then the teachers were saying like, well, it would be good if you would tell a different story. Then I was so successful. Then I broke down. Now I'm helping the world. Um, you know, and I was like, well, that's good because that's not my story at all. I don't, I don't haven't, I can, cannot identify with it. But we get so stuck in these simple narratives and the way we think that we understand them. Or, and, and then again, this stuckness, I think, is more the problem than a particular story and, and the affordances that they have or don't have um, in some way, that it's very, it's limiting and, and it's, redu- it's reducing. It's, well, it's, there's, there's, there's no there's complexity. something very capitalist about the way people have been talking about storytelling. It's an object. It's a commodity. It's something to be made and exchanged. And <laughs> um, rather than a tissue, a fabric that you're inside of, that you're interactive with, that you are storying, um, even when you don't think you are, you know. And I think that's why I've created this term, not created, but like been working with it, that I still feels like it's way too basic, which is ecological storytelling, which is just trying to always offer that stories don't belong to human beings. We don't necessarily make them or sit around a campfire and tell them or teach classes on how to do it. Um, We're in them and they're on a different temporal scale than us. And in fact, it's important to try and somatically feel into that sometimes. That it's not even that we're not the main character. We're hardly even like mentioned. Now it's the, the contextual as well, like the the warm the warm data, like that Nora Bateson speaks of, or like the. But and, and you're also pointing to pointing to it a couple of times, or the way that I understand it is just that there's also the time scale, like who, who how do you determine the time scale of anything? You know, the time scale of an ecosystem or a or a continent is different than I know, and our, so our many scales. things that we do are one of the things that I'm always trying to point out, and so many different ecolo- like green technology approaches or like ecosystem management approaches is you're thinking on a human scale. We have no idea what this thing is doing. Um, and so many of the um, simplistic interpretations of invasive, invasive species are really only working on a t- human time scale when those, those species are working on an e- ecosystem wide time scale that could be, you know, 700 years long. We, we don't even know. So yeah, I just kind of going back to where you actually began, which is, isn't it always better to stick with the uncertainty and the curiosity? What, what did you call it? Like you are a curious? Yeah. You are a curious. Yeah, I'm a curious too. Yeah, I think at any time we land on an answer, it's, a, you know, it's, it's very much like the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. If we, if we think we know the position, we don't know this, the velocity. Every time we think we know something, we know, don't know a lot more. We're excluding all of those different options. It's pointing to, because that's, that's why I've, I've stumbled into a couple of different things, which are also gaining a lot of traction, it seems, like this, this myth, like the mythic perspective. And, and um, I'm, I'm thinking that's kind of maybe the, the differentiation that we need to make, because myth to me isn't certain. It, it's, it's, it has, like, it's packed with all this different, like, depending on who I am interacting with it. Is going to be, it's going to be a completely different myth. Depending on how I come into it, it's going to be a completely different myth, like what I'm trying to source from it or draw from it or, or understand from it. I mean, and is, that, is that helpful? Or is that true? I don't even know. I'm not, you know. I've tried to reformat myths as being ecologically situated, which is that you can't take a myth 
and then and then transplant it to a different country out of its ecological and social situation and pretend like it still applies. And that I think one of the big problems with Christianity is you take a Galilean, illiterate, oral storytelling Jewish magician, and then you deracinate him from his ecology and his situation. You translate him into the language of the people who kill him, and then you disseminate that information over thousands of years in many different ecosystems and pretend like it could possibly still mean anything. And I do, in a lot of mythic um, uh, circles and groups, I'm very tired of mythic archetypes as like the descent and like the initiation and like the, that these stories, I want to say, find the stories outside your backyard, find the plant that's telling you a myth. Um, so I'm always, yeah, I'm just trying to decenter the human. Like, yeah, okay, we have human myths and they've been around for a long time, but there are, there are mythic happenings <laughs> under your feet in the air you're breathing in. And they might offer a lot of sustenance. Yeah. And there's the, there's also the potential of the, it's just very real for me right now. I, I just kind of rediscovered awe in a way. And like the, this whole idea of, of like awful or like awesome, or um, I'm sure there are other, other things that I can't, but, but just that it is that walking on the line. I mean, it is, it's like awe and fear, like how closely they're related. Fear they and are. trembling, like, like, Kierkegaard. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it goes back for me, it's the Gnostic Jesus and perhaps the oldest text that the closest text we have to the historical Jesus is the gospel of Thomas. Have you read it? Well, he says first, I think, what does he say? Like first you will seek and when you seek, you will be troubled. And when you were troubled, you will marvel and you'll be filled with awe. And for me, it's that, and all of the sayings, it's not a narrative, the Gospel of Thomas, it's a series of paradoxical apothegms of these like very complex, weird, like almost Zen koans. Um, and they all, they all prefigure the parables. Like they, they definitely share a lot of like um, texture and detail with the parables, but they're much weirder and less conclusive. And they seem to be formatted that way to create awe. And I always think of like perhaps the Gnostic earlier Rabbi Yeshua rather, rather than the Christian Christ. Um, his main teaching is awe. It's like the kingdom is now. It's a mustard green. It's the invasive species in your crops. It's like the children here right now. It's your bad relationship with your dad. Like, you know, awe, it's in that, that awestruck moment when you realize that everything is incredibly alive and perhaps not in the way that you understand aliveness to be. Yeah. What are the moments in your life where you feel like you can access that emotion? That's, that's an interesting question. And, and the answer is, I don't know. Um, it, it, they tend to sneak up on me on one end. It's, um, and, and it's, it's also new to me. Part of my story is that I've always felt that I've been contained. My, current description of it is, it is that it was containment from awe, like that, that little extra time or that extra breath or that stopping or that focusing on the, you know, zooming out or zooming in for that matter, that wasn't available to me as I was growing up. Like it wasn't, we were constantly moving and not in a, not in the cyclical way, but like in the, in the solar God kind of way, like it was, it was progress. Um, that was it. So, so awe is a new one for me. Um, I think it's for a lot of people. I mean, I think about something that I always want to offer is there are enough um, 
champions of the psychedelic movement. I don't need to add my voice to that. I'd rather say that the body is the psychedelic that we've been culturally trained to gate out. Um, and that, you know, it used to be that sensory gating that dampened, you know, we received so much stimuli that we would be overwhelmed if we took it all in. And it used to be that, that the ways that we trained our brains to homogenize reality were ecological. It was so that we could read animals coming through bushes, the changing of leaves, weather patterns. But now they're culturally gated, which means we gate out awe, we gate out wonder, we gate out relationship and miracles. And so I think that there's always, we always have an extractive subject-object oriented relationship with, with things. And so we want to take a heroic dose or a pill that creates awe, makes us better, makes us more ecologically aware. But what if your body was the medicine? And what if it was really just realizing that you do have the capability, you have 17,000 mechanoreceptors in your hands, you know, more than your lips, I think. Like you, we have all of these different superpowers that create that wonder struck state available to us right here, right now. But it's a, but we've been cultured out of them. So I very much, I like feel, yeah, we are, we are told and trained out of awe. Yeah, that feels true. And and there's the um, where where do you um, where do you go for awe in your life? Oh, I think these days I'm just always awestruck. I think that like, well, I was I was experienced really intense sexual trauma and um, physical illness. So I think I for a long time was so cut off from my body and numb. It was very I was also it's very like driven, very goal oriented, very cold, very intellectual. And now that I've come back into my body and given up all my stories and any kind of like projected future. I feel like I'm just like, I like walk outside the house and I see a woodchuck and I'm just like, oh my God. Like, I do think that it's usually some type music. It's either animals and experiences with nature. Um, you know, when you reach the top of a hike and you've, you know, as Nan Shepard says, you've walked the body transparent, you feel like you're just like part of the ecosystem. Or it's when it's a moment in a song where, you know, I have that flood of oxytocin in my body. I like just feel the song like cresting through me. Music for me is definitely a portal. Yeah. And there's something to, that's what I was thinking about when you were sp- speaking to the psychedelics. I think they're wonderful as a tour, but it's passive. I, I heard some, somebody speak of, of cultivating that mythical, sort of that unity with the bigger. And um, who, who took a very mythic perspective and like a mythic practice. I mean, and he, he had given up everything for this practice. This is the thing that he did. And um, there's something around that. That's what he was speaking to as well, that the psychedelic is wonderful, but it's passive. And then there's a difference between that active and like bringing yourself there. Yeah. I mean, I, we're just so, we're so concerned with what we can do what we can take in, what we can consume. And what I have offered to people who bring this up is, is what if you thought of yourself not as a virus, not as a member of like a, you know, death cult, but as a medicine and that there was a place in the landscape that wanted the acupuncture needle of your foot, that there was a place that was your ecological niche. And there was somewhere where you needed to put the medicine of your body. and that that quest it is is that mythic life is to always be thinking you know the prayer i've been 
praying that I've been working with is like, I put me, dance me into the place where I can be of the most service to like the more than human world, to my ecosystem, to other people and experience the most joy. Like the place where I'm like just looping reciprocally with everything and everyone I'm involved with, um, where there's no taking and there's no giving. It's just a constant flow. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's the, God, like, but the one, one thing is the, the, there's also a, a form of possession. I mean, it, there's a, uh, satiation, if that's a word of, of that need to possess by being in relationship with as well. I mean, it's also, that's also a form of it. We don't need to own necessarily. It's just to be and stand in relationship. Yeah. Everything you own, you'll lose. Um, you know, the only things that stay are, is, is your presence your openness to constantly being in relationship to whatever is present with you. Um, yeah, it's a sorrowful thing, but it's an amazing thing. Yeah, and how enlivening and awesome also sorrow can be. Oh, yeah. What a, what a, what a prick. What a, like, it's like when your foot is asleep and it comes back to awake and it like prickles and it stings. Like sorrow makes you feel your whole body. I mean, like I have never felt more alive than I have than when I've been like heartbroken. Like I feel every part of me online. Um, yeah. I am. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if I should be a responsible podcast host and start rounding things <laughs> yeah, up, I although I don't really want well, to. Maybe I'm like, we, we should talk again at some point in whatever way feels right. Like wh- whether it's in a podcast format or if it's just like totally um, zany and going on. Um, I do feel like there's a lot more to talk about. This was, um, yeah, just wonderful. If if um, if people want to find you, and uh, where should they be looking? Um, <laughs> where, wherever, where do you want them to find you? Um, you can find me on Instagram at Cosmogony, C O S M O G Y N Y. You can find me on Facebook at Sophie Strand and follow me. I think I have exceeded friend requests. Um, and then I have a website that's just sophiestrand.com, where I have um, publications and. Um, all my upcoming books. Yeah. And I would love to send you my book there's when it's, yeah, there are, there's <laughs> another one coming right now, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to send you a book and maybe hear your feedback at some point. Yeah. That'd be great. Oh, I'd, I'd love that. And, um, both to receive the book and to give the feedback. Yeah. And I, I'll link to all of those resources Thank that you. you've um, put up. And I, uh, speaking of awe, there is that feeling of, of like, new ideas trickling into my system. I feel the same way. I feel like this has been the least, I don't know how to explain this, the least performative I've been in a long time. And it feels really good. And it feels like you, you offered a lot of really interesting um, directions. You directed us, orchestrated us in a very interesting way. Thank you. Thank you. I felt like I was being swept along. (laughs) I I mean, I told you I'm passionate and contrarian and complicated. Yeah. Um, But thank you so much. 